Open with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 28. We are coming toward the conclusion of Matthew's Gospel. In fact, if I get through what I need to get through today, we have exactly one more message in Matthew's Gospel. But from chapter 1 and verse 1, Matthew has prepared us to understand who this Jesus Christ is. He is the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Promised One, the One that was anticipated by centuries of prophetic announcements. He is the One that is going to take away the sins of His people. And that's what we looked at at the cross. That was what He accomplished on the cross. It did exactly what God had designed it to do from before Adam took his first breath. The work of Christ on the cross led to victory over sin and death. He redeemed for Himself a people. And so often we want to move from there immediately to the resurrection. And for good reason. The resurrection, like I said earlier, is the cornerstone and the high point of the Christian faith. But last week, Matthew made us pause for a moment in front of a sealed tomb. And we were forced to come face to face with the fact that in this time, it looked like a failure. To those who had followed Christ, even to the most faithful, they had no understanding of how this could all be part of a plan. And on that Friday evening, as it went into that Sabbath Saturday, and even in the darkness of a Sunday morning, it looked for all the world like death had won. But Matthew helps us to realize through the details of what he writes that God was working even in the silence of the grave that 700 plus years before, when Isaiah wrote, he said that the, the Messiah, the servant of Yahweh, would have his grave assigned with the wicked, but would be with the rich man in his death. And we see that God works in the heart of Joseph of Arimathea to make that happen. Even if the disciples don't remember that he'll rise again, there are wicked men who do. And the religious leaders, out of a fear of what an empty grave would mean, make it as secure as possible and give us, really, another proof that the resurrection is real. They go to great lengths to ensure that whatever happens, the only explanation is that God was behind it. But do we understand why they were afraid? Do we understand why an empty tomb would have been so utterly disastrous for them and why an empty tomb is as earth-shattering as they feared that it would be? That's what we get into today. The fact that we have a living hope because we have a living Savior. God, very God, took on human flesh and lived among His people. He died the death that you and I deserved. But now He lives the life that He has promised us. Because He has been raised, we look forward to our resurrection. So if you're not there already, find your way to Matthew chapter 28. I'm going to read verses 1 through 10 to set the stage for where we're going. We'll move all the way through verse 15 today. But let's read the first 10 verses. Matthew chapter 28, beginning in verse 1, this is what God's Word says. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold... There was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, his clothes white as snow, and for fear of him the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lay, and then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. They ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and they worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. 
Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Let's pray. Lord, we know the story. Uh, We celebrate Easter. We have familiar themes and a familiar message. Lord, I pray that this never becomes familiar. I pray that we cannot look at the resurrection without responding in some way. I pray that the resurrection of Jesus Christ breaks our fear. I pray that the resurrection of Jesus Christ brings us hope. I pray that the resurrection of Jesus Christ brings us great joy as we anticipate worshiping with him in our resurrected bodies. What a remarkable thing that is to look forward to. So Lord, as we go through this account today, I pray that you would open our eyes so that we might behold wonderful things from your word. Pray along with the psalmist that you would do what we can't, and that is to show us the truth to bring us to a heart understanding of what you've written. And then, Lord, I pray that you would empower us to respond rightly, that you would give us the means to obey what you have called us to do, what you have called us to be. Lord, we need your help to do all of these things. And so we ask in Christ's name, amen. One of the more frustrating things about getting older, and we're all getting older, at least for me, is uh, the idea that sometimes I don't remember what I've said and what I haven't said. Usually this comes up in the context of my family when I'm telling my kids what I think is just a blockbuster great story, and I'm wondering why they're bored, um, and it's because they've heard it before. Now sometimes... That is because I've absolutely forgotten that I've told them again. You guys will very likely hear a number of sermon illustrations over the years where you'll say, well, that sounds familiar, and the reason is because I can't remember that I already told it to you. Or maybe that it fits really well in a couple of contexts, and you're going to be gracious, and we're all going to get along well. Um, But sometimes we repeat things, not because we've forgotten, but because they demand repetition. See, there are some stories that I tell my kids that I know that I've told them before. They know the story of how their mom and I got engaged, and they need to hear that story over and over, not just because it is the single most adorable thing in the entire world, and it is, but because it is a critical part of how God put our family together. When it comes to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we are covering familiar ground. So familiar, in fact, that the world outside of the church, and I don't just mean the four walls of the church, I mean the the world outside of the redeemed people of God knows the story. They are familiar with what has happened here. But this is a story that demands retelling over and over because we cannot just know the details. We have to understand it. You realize that this, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, has been the theme of Christian preaching since the dawn of the church. If you want proof, go back and read through the book of Acts. By the way, many of you have wondered where we're going after Matthew. Jesus made a remarkable promise in Matthew 16. He said, I will build my church. And what we're going to be doing from after next week, again, God willing, is that we are going to move through some of the book of Acts to see what it looks like as God builds his church. But you have to wait for that. As a church is born... It is born on the preaching of the resurrected Christ. When Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit and preaches that first sermon in Acts 2, the cornerstone of that sermon is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And by the way, it's the same thing in Acts 3. And in Acts 4, and in Acts 10, as that gospel goes out to the Gentiles, and it's the same message that Paul picks up in Acts chapter 13, and when he's in Athens in Acts chapter 17, and when he's making his defense before the, before the leaders, this idea of the resurrection is always present in Christian preaching. It is always present as the gospel is proclaimed because it is absolutely essential to who we are. 
this gospel call demands a response, and the resurrection is the reality that demands that response. And so what we're going to look at today is Matthew's account of that resurrection, of that most significant thing in all of human history. And we're going to see a couple of things. First of all, we're going to see the reality of the resurrection, how Matthew establishes the details and how it all fits together. And then we're going to look at the responses that are given. So let's start to look at the reality of the resurrection. And what we're going to notice in these first few verses is a number of preparations that God put in place here. Verse 28 starts with, Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Remember, the Sabbath is the last day of the week. It would begin at Friday at sundown. It would carry all the way through Saturday. And there were a number of things that could and could not happen on that day. And in Matthew, we've seen these wonderful, faithful women be this kind of constant presence through the end. These were the women who were at a distance, but were there as the witnesses to the crucifixion of Christ. It says that they followed to the tomb. They would have seen where they laid him. They saw Joseph, and they saw Nicodemus prepare his body with 75 pounds worth of spices. They saw the stone rolled into place, and they lingered there at the grave almost as long as they could is kind of the picture that you get and now they are returning. In Luke 23, we're told what they did after they watched where that stone was. In Luke 23, verse 56, it says, Then they returned and they prepared spices and ointments, and on the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. See, what they do is when they see Jesus buried, they go home and they begin to make their own preparations for his preparation. They saw what Joseph and Nicodemus did, and of course there's no way that they could match the pure volume and uh, the money that it took for those spices and, and the costly things that they put in with them. But what they're doing now is this really beautiful, tender picture of they are going to prepare a family member. What's going to happen for them is they're not going to allow the body of the Savior, the man that they love, to be prepared in a rush before sundown on the Sabbath they are going to go and they are going to tenderly care for him the very last time. That's what they spent their Sabbath doing, is preparing to anoint the body of Jesus. That's why Mark says that they went. Mark's gospel says they came for the purpose of anointing Jesus. And don't miss this. They go expecting to find a body. Their every anticipation is to find Jesus on Sunday morning exactly as they left him on Friday evening. They've prepared themselves. It was probably a day of mourning. They prepared the spices, and now they're going to prepare his body. But that's not the only preparation that takes place. Look at verse 2. And behold, mark this, pay attention, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. Earthquakes are a significant part of this narrative. They are geological events. They mean the earth physically shook. That is absolutely true. But all the way through Matthew's narrative, they've been kind of an announcement thing. At the death of Jesus Christ, you remember he told us the earth shook. If you remember back to Matthew 24 and Matthew 25 when we were talking about that coming day of the Lord and the return and the day of judgment that was coming, there are earthquakes associated with that, birth pangs. They serve as an announcement, as an attention getter that something significant is happening. And we're actually told why this one happens. There was a great earthquake because an angel of the Lord had descended from heaven and come and rolled back the stone and sat on it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. Uh, our culture has terribly misrepresented what angels are, what they do, and how people respond to them. 
We have reduced them to the chubby little things on the front of the Valentine's Day cards with the diapers and the heart-tipped arrows and the wings and the whole thing is very sweet and approachable. Angels are terrifying, powerful, awesome beings. You read through the descriptions of how they are put forth in Scripture from Ezekiel 1 and how they accompany the very throne of God. And every time people are brought into their presence, the, the universal response is one of fear. And you think, this one, how he's described clothes, brilliant, white. And, and in his description, we see something of a reflection that draws our minds back to the way Maybe we've seen Christ described. Maybe your mind goes to Revelation where John describes the glorious Christ. Maybe we get drawn back to the Mount of Transfiguration that Matthew talked about and the brilliance and the radiance of Christ. And the reality is that these angels reflect something of the glory of God. They are not God. They are not equal to God. That is absolutely clear in the text. But they are dwelling continually in His presence. Their entire existence is for the sake of worship and service to God. And they reflect some of that glory of God. And the first people to encounter that terrifying glory are the guards at the tomb. And they do what men always do when they are in the presence of something unquestionably, unimaginably greater than themselves. They trembled and they became like dead men. Very, very interesting. Uh, the world shakes, and then the same root word, the guards shake. There's a lot of shaking going on in this passage. They're so terrified that they faint dead away. And understand that even all of this is God's preparation for what is coming. See, because God has as his intention that these women are going to witness something remarkable. But from a human perspective, that can't happen. They might have spent all Sabbath preparing, mourning, getting ready for what was going to come, but they were going to come to a tomb that was sealed by a stone that they could not move. They were going to come to a tomb that was guarded by soldiers that would have had no intention of letting them anywhere near the body of Jesus of Nazareth. But look what God has done. Even in this remarkable way, He has prepared the scene so that He will have His chosen witnesses there to testify to the reality of the resurrection. So this angel of the Lord removes the stone and He removes the threat of the guard. And that angel doesn't communicate with the guards at all. He allows their initial response to be their only response. But he does respond to the women. And the next thing that we see is that there are a couple of very critical proclamations that are going to take place. First of all, the angel's proclamation to the women. Look at verse 5. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He tells the women what angels always have to tell, even the faithful, and that is, do not be afraid. Again, the natural response to something that glorious, that powerful, is fear. And the consistent thing that angels have to say first is, don't die. Don't be afraid. John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, when an angel appears to him, he says, don't be afraid. When an angel appears to Mary, don't be afraid. When the angels show up in the fields to those shepherds keeping watch over their sheep by night, don't be afraid. He says, don't be afraid. I know why you're here. He knows that they've come to find the body of the one that they love. He knows that they've come to honor him in his death, but that's just not going to be possible. Why? Because he's not there. He says he's risen. 
I know that you seek the Christ Jesus, you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen as he said. What a wonderful sentence. He is not here, he is risen. The one that you expected to find dead is no longer dead. The place where you expected to find nothing but defeat is empty, and victory has taken its place. And by the way, all this is just as he said. Matthew is not subtle in inserting that over and over and over. Because we are a people who are quick to see disaster in the face of things that turn out a way other than what we would have planned. The last few days look like loss. Remember, from their perspective, none of this is going according to the plan. The angel reminds them that he is risen, and it is just as he said. Jesus has told them what was going to happen. And the reality is that the Father is not shocked by the rejection of the Son. That Jesus is not surprised that the people don't believe. Jesus is not surprised that the religious leaders hate Him. Jesus is not surprised by the trials, by the beating, by the crucifixion. Jesus isn't caught off guard by any of that. And now for the first time, it begins to make sense to them. Luke 24 says that they remembered his words. As the angel says it, it's like these memories come flooding back. And for the first time, they begin to make these wonderful connections that exactly what Jesus said is what he meant. And in these words is the reality that Christ is victorious. That he is not here, that he is risen just as he said. He says, come, see the place where he lay. Even in that, recognizing that we as fallen and often faithless people need to see, come, look, the proof is here because he is not. And and that kind of gives way to a proclamation now that they are told to make. Verse 7, then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. Ladies, it's time to go. Don't stand around and marvel at this. Don't sit and wonder. You now have work to do. Go and tell his disciples that he is raised from the dead. Now, in that command to go and tell, I think if we were thinking about this logically, if we were thinking about this according to our flesh, we would expect there to be some kind of an accusation there. Ladies, go tell the disciples all that they've missed out on. Ladies, go tell the disciples that they were the ones that should have been here, and yet that's not what we see. Go and tell his disciples. And first of all, as unimaginable as it seems, does it shock you that they're still called his disciples? These are the men who abandoned him. As he's arrested, they are fleeing into the darkness. In Peter's case, denying that they even know him. Jesus doesn't abandon or disown his people. They are still his disciples. They're still the ones that he's called to himself. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him. Not only are they still his disciples, but he still desires to be with them. He still has a plan for them. See, Matthew actually doesn't spend a lot of time on the details of the appearances around the resurrection. You put the other gospel accounts together for that. Matthew is moving us rapidly toward how he is going to use these disciples to transform the world through the preaching of the gospel. And as unimaginable, as unexplainable as it might be to us, these are still 
the men that he is going to use to accomplish his purposes. He is going before you, and there you will see him. And by the way, even that is exactly as he said. Flip back a page or two with me to Matthew chapter 26, if you would. In Matthew chapter 26, we're moved back toward that upper room. And then look with me in Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 30. It says, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. And we remember how everything in there happened exactly as Jesus said. The disciples fled. Peter denied him. But we moved on fairly quickly. But did you notice what's embedded in the middle of that? After I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Even in his promise of the disciples' failure is the promise that he will be raised up and the promise that he will go before them and will meet them in Galilee. Now, after all that's happened, I think it still amazes me that nothing has changed. That God's plans don't change even when his people fall short. Even after their rejection, they're still invited. So again, we can put the other gospel accounts together. We can see a number of different appearances and uh, pursuits and uh, doubts laid to rest. But Matthew is moving us toward the fact that these disciples are going to have a very particular work to do. That's our text for next week. So go back to Matthew chapter 28. We've seen how Matthew's established the reality of the resurrection, that God has done everything necessary to prepare the scene. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is more than a historical event. We can't stop at understanding that it happened. We have to look at responding to the resurrection. And embedded in the text here are a couple of different responses. First of all, we're going to see the response of those faithful women. Look at verse 8. It says, So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. They get instruction and they leave quickly. And that initial response is a mixture of fear and great joy. And the different gospel accounts are so fascinating in how they portray this. You read Mark's gospel and he really kind of focuses on the fear there. And he says they went out and they didn't say anything to anyone at first. See, if I saw this, my first instinct would be to grab the first person and to tell them about it, I would think. They were so fearful and processing and they had been sent on a specific mission that they don't go to tell anybody else, but they do move toward the disciples they're still putting the piece together. But for the first time in three days, there's this glimmer of hope. And can you imagine them moving down the road? Uh, What are we going to say and how are we going to say it? How are we going to make them understand uh, the reality of all that's happened? And as they're doing that, in their fear, in their joy, in their confusion and putting the pieces together, uh, behold, verse 9, look at this, pay attention to this, behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings, came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. The one that they went to find in the first place has now found them on the road. And as soon as they hear his voice, they recognize who he is. And says they took hold of his feet and worshipped him. I'm assuming Jesus was not floating at eye level. They fell down 
before him. And they grabbed his feet and they worshipped him. After the loss that they had suffered, after the unbelievable news that they had just heard, can you imagine how tightly they must have held to that risen Christ? I don't think they were going to be quick to let go and lose him again. And in this, we see the first, the most appropriate, the central response to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that is they worshipped him. How does the resurrection of Jesus Christ demand you and I respond? It's this. It is worship. This action would have been wildly inappropriate for anyone else. Angels, marvelous, remarkable things. And there are times when men see them and they fall at their feet. Even you look through Revelation and John falls at the feet of an angel and the angel says, stop it. Don't do that. You must get up. He says, I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. And that angel says, worship God. But here in this context, at the feet of the risen Lord, worship is the only appropriate response. And look at what Jesus says to them. Verse 10, then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. There was a lot to be afraid of over the last few days, wasn't there? A scheming Judas, an arrest, a midnight trial, a crowd turned against Jesus, a crucifixion, an angel. (laughs) There was a lot to be afraid of in the context. But not when you're in the presence of Jesus. Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. And again, we read over that so quickly, but there's so much even in that one phrase. Do not be afraid. And then he gives them that command that is so similar to what the angel said. But do you see the significant distinction in what Jesus says? Go and tell my brothers. Guys, disciples was more gracious than they deserved and I think we could imagine. Again, these are the ones who promised to be with him to death and who didn't make it through the evening. These are the ones who had denied who he was, either by their actions or, like Peter did, very overtly with his words. And disciples, to maintain that standing as a disciple would have been unimaginably gracious. But Jesus doesn't leave it there. He could have gone farther. He could have called them his friends. And he does that in John chapter 15 in the upper room. He says, "Uh, you're not servants any longer. I'm treating you as friends. I'm telling you what I'm going to do. I'm bringing you into the plan of all of this. And that would have been unimaginably gracious. But he doesn't stop there. He says, go and tell my brothers. The author of Hebrews picks up on that theme. In Hebrews 2, verse 10, he says, for it was fitting that he... For whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that he should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source, and that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. That sanctifying work of Christ cleansed his people. You understand the work of Christ was so thorough, so complete, so absolutely purifying that God, very God, Perfection in his holiness doesn't have to be ashamed to call fallen, frail men his brothers. 
Uh, there's grace in there that we can overlook far too quickly if we're not paying attention. Those faithful women respond in fear and great joy. Christ gives them uh, a remarkable reminder of his grace, but then there's another response here that Matthew shifts to, and that is the response of the wicked. Look at verse 11. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and they told the chief priests all that had taken place. While they are going, while the women go out, uh, the guards who either have woken up and already left by the time they get there or who wake up and leave after they get there, they go back and they report to the chief priests what has happened. Again, Matthew doesn't give us the disciples' response. Matthew is going to use this to explain something that his audience, his original audience, had likely heard come through various sources. They went into the city. They told the chief priests all that had taken place. Those same ones who had fallen down in terror and fainted dead away at the sight of the angel uh, now have to go and tell somebody because this is a secret that is going to get out. Uh, there's no way to pretend that nothing has happened early on this Sunday morning. And when it says that they went and told the chief priests, it says they told them all that had happened, which means that they told them about standing guard early that morning. It means that they told them that the silence is shattered by the earthquaking and that they are blinded essentially by this brilliant being who comes into their presence as they faint dead away. <laughs> and I think that at that point we might assume that even the religious leaders would want to think through their response. Hey, fellas, maybe we got this wrong. Maybe after all of our planning, all of our scheming, all of our plotting, all of our preparation, maybe we're dealing with something that's a little bit out of our league here. But that is just not what happens. Verse 12, And when they had assembled with the elders and they had taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers. And they said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we're asleep. They assume that money will solve the problem because that is what has solved all their problems up to this point. All it took to turn Judas was some money. Really, if you look at the kind of social and political landscape of the time, it was money that kept them in power and it was money that they wanted to keep while they were in power. And here... Money is going to solve their uh, next problem. I don't know what a sufficient sum of money looks like, but it would have had to be very large because what do you suppose the penalty was for those that failed to carry out the orders of a Roman governor? Pilate said, make the tomb secure. Pilate, of all people, knows that the Jews are a breath away at any given time from rebellion, especially at this time. And Pilate knows that an empty grave, no matter what the reason behind it, is trouble for him. And to be the one that fails to make sure that grave stays a grave would absolutely invite death. That would have taken quite a bit of money. And the promise that they make in verse 14. And if this comes to the governor's ears, and by the way, this is going to come to the governor's ears. It says, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. We're going to do what's necessary to make sure you don't wind up in a grave yourself. Don't worry about Pilate. And after all, they've already seen that they can manipulate him. Uh, they've already shown that they have some ability to coerce him and to move him toward what they want. After all, really, they want the same thing that Pilate does. They just want everything to go back to normal 
and to pretend that none of this ever happened. That's the best case scenario for all of them. Then everything just carries on as it was. If this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him. We will keep you out of trouble. And so what happens, they took the money and they did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Matthew tells his audience, uh, this is the origin for what you've probably heard. This is where all of those stories started. Now, again, we can look back over the narrative and we see that that story is almost laughable because the last people to show up at a tomb to challenge guards to steal a body at this point are going to be the disciples. These are not those guys who are going to go and make a scene. Now, they said, don't worry, we'll pass this off. But what's shocking about all of this is that even with another proof, and really uh, in Matthew's gospel, this is the most pointed proof of who Christ is, is the resurrection. Even with all that proof, they prove hard and rebellious and unwilling to believe. If you flip back one chapter to Matthew chapter 27, it, it takes on another pointed element here. Again, we can't lose the context of where this has been. Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 38, this is in the context of the crucifixion of Christ and all the suffering there. It says, Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Now look at verse 41. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying he saved others, he cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel, let him come down now from the cross, and then what? And then we will believe him. He trusts in God, let God deliver him now if he desires. For he said, I am the son of God. Their implication is, Jesus, if you do something like this, if God delivers you from this, surely we would believe him. You want the proof that that was absolutely not the case, that this is a heart rejection? It's now. What's harder, to come off a cross when you are almost dead or to come out of a grave that everyone knows you were dead when you went into? They knew. They are not in darkness because they don't have enough proof. They are in darkness because they love the darkness. Two wildly different responses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what we have here is nothing less than the high point in all of human history. It, it seems like today, with 24-hour news coverage, with... Uh, the rise of social media giving international attention to even minor details, uh, that anything can have a global impact. It seems like even little things can impact the world. An earthquake in one place that impacts everybody, although when we stop to think about it, really almost nothing impacts all of humanity. An earthquake might be seen as a terrible disaster. It might get aid, but it doesn't impact those that weren't there. We've lived through a global pandemic. And we say, well, certainly that impacted the world, but in reality, that impacted most the ones who had the most. There are places in the world that were relatively unchanged, and as we look back now, not much has changed other than maybe a few daily inconveniences. Now, when you get right down to it, there are very few things that have impacted all of humanity. The fall did, as it changed our very nature and response. The flood did, as it wiped out all of human life. 
the scattering of the nations at the Tower of Babel, the cross of Jesus Christ that was where God dealt with the sins of his people from every tribe and tongue and nation, and now the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because this is the dividing fact in all of human history. How will you respond to the resurrected Christ? And really, that drives the, the application for today. What do you do with this resurrection? Responding to this resurrection. You say, we've heard this before. I told you, sometimes we say the same things because we forget. Sometimes we say the same things because they are so very critically important. You cannot hear these things and come away neutral. There is no neutral response to the resurrection. It, because if this is real, if this is real, then it means Jesus Christ is exactly who He claimed to be and who the Bible says that He is. And that is nothing less than the very Son of God who has died to redeem a people for Himself and who lives in power and glory and who will come again to rule the nations. If this is true, then He is the great God and King who deserves and demands not only our attention, but our worship. And the marvelous thing is that we have been given the gracious opportunity to respond to that today. That God has given us today to deal with this reality. The author of Hebrews picks up on that theme in Hebrews chapter 3. He says, while it is still called today, don't harden your hearts. He says, don't be like those people who wandered in the wilderness who saw proof after proof after proof of God's power and His care for His people, and yet they continually turned aside and continually rejected Him. Don't be like them. While you have today, respond to this. Because some of you are sitting there and you're bored. You've heard this 10,000 times. You've heard me more times than you would care to admit to. And this is just old hat to you. Some of you might be sitting there hearing this, and this might very well make you angry. How can anyone believe anything so foolish? How dare you say that this is the singular truth that defines all of humanity? Maybe there's someone sitting or listening here today, and God is beginning to move in your heart. And you are thinking, maybe, just maybe, there's some truth to all this. I don't know where your heart is at, but I plead with you, do not waste the day that God has given you. The resurrection of Jesus Christ demands your response. And it will either be worship or rejection. And there are eternal consequences to that. Second thing, I think about witnessing miracles. It's remarkable to me the ones that the Lord chose to reveal this to first. It wasn't the rich. It wasn't the powerful. It wasn't the inner circle of the disciples, Peter and James and John, who he had a very close relationship with. It was the women. I don't think it's because they were the favorites. I don't think it was done to spite the disciples. I think they were the ones who had the amazing privilege of witnessing this because they showed up. Because they were there. Because even in their confusion and their heartbreak, they did the best that they could to be near to Jesus. Our culture is big on the miraculous. It sells bad books. It makes bad movies. And it shows pretty well on social media. 
And tragically, we're drawn away by cheap tricks rather than the actual miracle. Do you know that, that you and I are able to witness the single greatest miracle ever? And it's not a regrown limb. It's not even a cured cancer. Do you know what the greatest miracle ever is? It's the regeneration of the human heart. Taking a dead sinner, condemned to hell, and rightly so, one who hates God and lives at enmity with Him and watching that heart become transformed by the Gospel of Christ and having the law of God written on it and having a life and an eternity completely changed because of this truth. There is no greater miracle than that. And by the way, that miracle then produces other miracles like actual change that we could never bring about on our own. And you know who gets to see the really miraculous? It's the people that show up. And I'm not talking about coming to four walls of a church, although it is important to be here and we'd love to have you here. It's the ones who show up and are obedient. Do you know who gets the amazing privilege of witnessing uh, people getting saved? It's the ones who bother to go out and preach the gospel like Christ told them to. Do you know who gets the privilege of seeing lives transformed and people move toward obedience? It's the people that bother to participate in discipleship as Christ told us to. So often I feel like we're a people without any stories to tell and I wonder, I wonder if it's because a lot of times we're a people that just don't bother to show up the way that He tells us to. And finally, I want to leave with this thought. You ever anticipate what worship will be like? Can you imagine the feeling that those women had when they saw Christ? When after expecting death, when after expecting the end, they saw him and they clung on to him. Do you ever think about what it'll be like the first time we see Christ in eternity? I'm not big on speculation or emotional manipulation, but I wonder how often we just sit in the joy of what that'll be like. Because there's some Sundays that are really good Sundays. My heart's in the right place. You guys are singing for the joy of the Lord. I get through the sermon without making a fool of myself, and boy, it feels pretty good to be here. Can you imagine 10,000 times 10,000 more perfect an experience of worship? Seeing Christ face to face, stripped of all your sin, finally done with all of your failures and all of those things that you wish you could shake off but you fight so hard because the flesh clings so tightly finally being done with those things and being face to face in the presence of your Savior and knowing that it never has to end does the resurrection of Christ ever make you wonder and long for and anticipate that moment when my resurrection means that I'm in his presence forever something to sing about. Let's pray. Lord, the resurrection of Christ changes everything. The hinge of human history that means that we anticipate life and eternal life. 
Lord, put that joy in us, put that hope in us, put that courage in us that tells us do not fear, not because there's nothing to be afraid of, but because you have overcome every fearful thing. And Lord, make us faithful. Faithful to worship you through our lives, through our attitudes, through our actions, through our words, through the intentions of our heart. Lord, make us a people who worship you and who obey you. And Lord, help us to proclaim this gospel of the resurrection. Let the message of the empty tomb, the message of the apostles, be the message of the church that Jesus Christ died and was raised again so that he might make us sons and daughters of the living God.